This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault. On today's show, we are continuing our A24 retrospective. This is our 16th edition of the series. You can listen to episodes 215, A24 Retrospective Revenge of the Green Dragons, 215, A24 Retrospective Laggies, or go all the way back to 108, a history of A24 films to get the full backstory on the company. Today, we are looking at 2014's The Captive, directed by Adam Agoyan. I didn't have chocolate ice cream, so... Guinness? Yes! 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 You claim you didn't see anything suspicious when you looked back to the truck. They've taken my daughter. I need to know right now, what are you doing to help? (laughs) You lost our girl! It's his fault. This whole thing is his fault. You people can't even do your job. All you can do is turn my wife against me. If you think that I did this, you, you come here and you arrest me. The film stars Ryan Reynolds as a husband who is still looking for his kidnapped daughter eight years after her disappearance, and detectives played by Scott Speedman and Rosario Dawson who don't quite trust him. I want to welcome back to the show Matthew Simpson. By now, everyone should be well aware of Matthew's resume. He is one half of the excellent Awesome Friday podcast, where every week, Matthew, along with his co-host Simon Best, review two new things. He's been a guest on this show numerous times, most recently on episode 212, 2022 VIF Wrap-Up, where we recorded the same show and released on both of our feeds. So, welcome back, Matthew. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me back. It's always a pleasure to be here. Of course. Uh, You know... People may have noticed uh, Rachel is not a part of the introduction and people would be going, where is Rachel? Where, where is Rachel? I always love Rachel's input on these things. And you know what? She is. She's busy. She's traveling. Uh, she is, you know, moving around lots. But like, do you know, you know where Rachel is, right? Right. Yeah. She's you? right over there. She's right over there. <laughs> she's, yes. she's like spitting distance from where we are, physically speaking. And I don't think I'm going to see her in person, which bumps me out. Uh, me either. Yes, it's very frustrating that Rachel is in uh, beautiful British Columbia covering the Whistler Film Festival, and uh, we're not recording an episode. I'm not seeing her in person, nothing like that. So uh, hello, Rachel, from uh, just a mere few hours away from where we are both recording right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay, though. Uh, I don't know. We haven't talked to we'll be We're recording our show um right after we're done recording this show and uh, Rachel will be my co-host for the rest of December. So that's going to be fun. So I'm looking forward to that. Matthew, you're going to have to start paying me residuals or something. If you're going to keep stealing her. I mean, she keeps volunteering. Uh, you know, there's, we, we don't have that much petty cash. So, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, she has the, the best radio voice of all of us. Uh, I think so. I'm, hey, I'm wow, happy. You have a, you have a terrific radio voice. Do not sell yourself short there, Matthew. Hey, I'm not commenting on anyone else's quality. I'm just saying that hers is a cut above. <laughs> uh, well, then fine. How about this? Next time you and I meet up in person, uh, you buy me a drink or something. I don't know. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's just because it's long overdue that we've uh, we've been talking about it for a while of, of getting together. and we, we just haven't found the time yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's also been a... Uh, there's been some big worldwide event that we're all caught up in the last couple of years too. I don't, I don't remember uh, what it's called, but yeah. uh, it's been a thing. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yes. <laughs> um, but let's get into what we're here for today. Uh, we've got filmmaker Adam Agoyan, who was born in Egypt to Armenian Egyptian parents and moved to Victoria, British Columbia as a child, very close to here, relatively speaking. He was mm-hmm. a founding member of the Toronto New Wave film scene alongside icons like Patricia Rosema, Don McKellar, Bruce McDonald, and Virgo Clement. After slowly building up a reputation in Canadian independent circles for a few years, he broke out on the international stage with 1994's Exotica and followed it up with 1997's The Sweet Hereafter, which was nominated for two Oscars. The Captive represents the first of two films A24 has released, with Remember coming out in 2016. Look for that episode down the line. In The Captive, Ryan Reynolds plays Matthew Lane, a contractor who is struggling with money. He and his wife, Tina, played by Marielle Enos, watch their daughter, nine-year-old Cassandra, at figure skating practice. Afterwards, Tina leaves to go to work, and Ryan and Cassie head home. On the way back, Ryan stops at a diner to pick up some pie, and while inside, Cassandra is abducted. 
Detective Jeffrey Cornwall, played by Speedman, sees too many holes in Matthew's story and immediately suspects him for orchestrating the kidnapping of his own daughter. Eight years later, Cassie pops up in online chat rooms as bait to your lung to, as bait to lure young g- girls into the arms of pedophiles, a job Cassie is forced to do while in a makeshift dungeon. At the same time, Cassie's captor starts sending starts messing with both Matthew and Tina by dropping breadcrumbs about her existence, causing them psychological torture. The film premiered during the 2014 Cannes Film Festival, and it got a limited release in Canada in September 2014, while it was released with day-and-date release strategy in America on December 12, 2014. E24 acquired the rights before Cannes and worked with DirecTV to have a VOD and theatrical release of the film. This is going to be a spoiler-filled episode, so if you've not watched the film, we suggest doing so first. I think the starting-off point of our conversation should be about some offline conversations you and I have had, Matthew. You and I share a love of Canadian films and often talk about how one day you'd love to do a podcast focusing on CanCon. Here you have Mm -hmm. a Canadian icon with a film that is regarded as one of his weaker efforts, starring Ryan Reynolds, who later found his persona with Deadpool playing smarmy, self-deprecating know-it-alls. This film came out at a time when he was mostly doing uh, serious dramatic work before this transition. How does the pairing of a legendary Canadian director and Vancouver's mayor work for you? Vancouver's mayor. That's uh, Vancouver local Ryan Reynolds is how the bylaw dictates that we refer to him, I believe. My apologies. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think it's an, a good pairing, to be totally honest. I have, a, um, I have many feelings about this movie, having pretty much literally just watched it. Uh, but I think it's actually a really solid Ryan Reynolds' performance. Uh, And I think that we all sort of forget that he's actually a pretty capable dramatic actor when he's paired with a a director that's able to draw it out of him. And I think this is an example of one of those. I wish the movie was better, but it is a really good pairing of director and actor, for sure. Yeah, I I agree. I quite liked the pairing of Agoyan and, and Reynolds. Now I'm going to be honest here. This was actually my first Agoyan movie. I've never seen the sweet hereafter or exotica or any number of his other cult classics that he has produced. Uh, Chloe films like that. Really? So this, yeah, I In- know. Interesting. I know. And I feel terrible. It's funny. I actually owned one of his movies adoration because uh, the lead in that film is Devin Bostick, who was a high school classmate of mine. who was, a, I think, a year younger than me. But I, I bought it because I was like, oh, sweet. It's like in the $5 movie bin. I'll, I'll buy this. And I never got around to watching it. And I don't think I have it anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that this is my first Agoyan, which I know it's going to ruffle some feathers. So I apologize for that. Um, I don't think you need to apologize. And we can get into that a little later because it's true. He... Well, maybe we get into right now. He is a legendary Canadian actor and he, or Canadian director, and he has directed a number of, I would say, very good, very good films that are probably deserved to be on the conversation for, like, say, top ten or top twenty Canadian films of all time. Um, he's also directed a lot of crap, and <laughs> it, what I find really interesting about Egoyne is that, and I'm maybe I'm in the minority here, but my, I find his work is either incredible or crap. Mm. And there's very little middle ground in my estimation. Like, I don't think I don't find any of his films to be just fine. You know, like they're, they're either like really good or not good. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some cases, I guess they're the closest you get to a middle ground with him would be one like this, which I find frustratingly close to being good. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, most of his best work happened in the nineties. Um, and I guess two thousand all the way up to about 2008. Um, but his run since basically since around 2008 has been pretty, pretty bad, unfortunately. <laughs> and I, I hate, I hate to have to say that because his, his early work is so good. Yeah, so you're basically saying everything after Adoration has not been good. Um, I think that Chloe is actually pretty good, uh, okay, which came so out the year the year after Adoration. Yeah. Um, but even in the middle there, like uh, Exotica is great. 
the Sweet Hereafter is incredible. Um, Felicia's Journey is pretty good. Ararat is pretty good. Where the Truth Lies, um, similar to this one, is um, I think frustratingly close to being good, but not quite there. Uh, even though it won, I think, a Genie Award for Best Screenplay. Uh, Genie Awards, of course, now being the Canadian Screen Awards. Uh, so he's he's been very uneven the whole time, I guess is the way to say it, but is definitely stronger at the beginning of his career. I find it interesting staying on the Agoyan train of thought. Uh, we talked about this a bit when we were doing Toronto set movies with Cronenberg, just the ability to attract American actors to Canadian productions. Now, I would say that the captive is sort of lacking in that with the exception of Rosario Dawson, as far as uh, big name American performers in his films. But you look through the the course of history, almost like basically everything after his, his breakout films have always starred fairly big American names, which is a very interesting thing to do that you're like, oh, hey, I'm just going to go up and do this little Canadian movie. Do you have any sort of idea maybe why uh, they would be attracted to, to working with a filmmaker like a Goyan, having seen so many? Uh, 100% I do. It's because The Sweet Hereafter was nominated for Best Director and Best or best Screenplay at the Oscars in 1997. 1997? Yeah, it was um, 97, so it was 98, yeah. Yeah, uh, and I believe those were the two he was nominated for. Yeah, Best Director and Best Adapted Screenplay. And I think that actors want to work with good directors. And generally speaking, the Academy nominates good directors and good writers. And so he, uh, I think that really upped his cachet with, uh, with in many circles, uh, but Hollywood in particular. And you're right, like he has a lot of... Uh, American uh, stars. He also has a number of British stars in his movie, in his movies. Um, uh, I think, yeah, I think, I think those Oscar nominations really sort of did wonders for his ability to attract talent. And again, rightly so he seems to be, I will say even in the movies that of his, that I don't like, there are people doing good work as actors. Um, Mm -hmm. I think he's able to get good performances out of people, even if the movies themselves end up being bad. Or I should say, if I end up not connecting with them, because, you know, art is subjective. <laughs> so let's get into, I guess, maybe the the nuts and bolts of this plot a little bit. I, I just tried describing it in the intro, and I actually really struggled with writing that intro because there was a lot that goes on in this movie, a lot uh, of story machinations to kind of keep the ball rolling a lot of it is very complicated and confusing. Right after the movie finished, my, my wife turned to me and was like, so how was it? What was it about? And I was like, well, okay, so there's this kidnapping. Okay, so I need to go back a little bit and set up the family dynamic first to explain it. And then after the kidnapping, I think they're separated, but I'm not totally sure. And then this is happening and that's happening. And then there's also this other side story that's happening. And then you realize that's connected to the kidnappers. And then the kidnappers are connected to the actual family. There's just... A lot of moving pieces in this story, and I think maybe that's if if I want if I can you know put a few words in your mouth, maybe where it sort of starts to fall apart because you have such a dense story where you have so many interconnecting weaving pieces that he kind of like loses the focus quite a bit. And I'm saying this as someone that still probably liked it a lot more than you did. There's a lot of moments in this where you're just like, wait, what is happening here? What timeline is this? How is this all connect back to it? Am I sort of hitting the mark there about maybe how you feel about it a little bit? I mean, basically, I mean, the shorter way to say it would be that it is, first off, the plot itself, if you put it in linear order, is needlessly convoluted. Yes. Like overly and needlessly convoluted. And then he made the choice to do what he he quite frequently does, and he tells it in a nonlinear way. And in this instance, that nonlinear structure is, also comes with very little in the way of like visual cues to tell you that the timeline has switched. Uh, mm-hmm. As you watch the movie, like it's easier to tell when it's switching as you get more familiar. But at the, at the beginning, like it's like being dropped into the deep end of a swimming pool. Like it doesn't make any sense for a while. Um. And I feel like that, like I can get behind a convoluted plot, but the nonlinear structure on top of that really basically disrupts any 
any tension that the film is building at any given time. Because every time I, every time I started to be like, Oh, this is getting interesting. It would just jump to a different time frame, time frame. <laughs> and then I'd be like, wait, what is happening? What? What? <laughs> and I, I, I don't know. I don't. And the frustrating thing though, is that like, I don't think straightening out the timeline would have made it a better film. Mm-hmm. I like, it's still too com too convoluted to be like good, you know? Or for something to be something that I would connect with. Yeah, I think I think an easy solution, and it's a very tropey thing to do, if you wanted to sort of clarify the timelines a little bit, was uh, pre-kidnapping, Ryan Reynolds has no beard. Post-kidnapping, he has a beard. If it, if it was something as minor as that, I think it would be a hell of a lot easier to sort of follow the timeline jumps. Because you're right, this movie does start out with a time shift, and you're not too sure what's going on until much later in the movie. And and I sort of didn't mind a little bit because it, I was at first while I was watching it very confused. And then when it clicked with me, it sort of was like, Oh, I understand what's happening. They're jumping around in the time. And because it was my first going experience, I wasn't familiar that this is a usual thing he does. Like he's Christopher Nolan or something. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but it still was complicated. Even if I enjoyed trying to figure it out, I think, more complicated than the Ryan Reynolds storyline was the Scott Speedman and Rosario Dawson storyline where I could not understand what was past and what was present with them. Yeah. And like the decision to like, obviously I guess we're talking spoilers. So like there's, you know, we see their first meeting we see all this out of order, but we see their first meeting where they're sort of almost repulsed by one another and then, like, in the next scene, they're in bed together, and it's kind of, like, too jarring, you know? Um, and I don't know, maybe, I feel like maybe I missed something, but there's definitely a scene that takes place in a year where Ros- Rosario Dawson has short hair, but then she never has short hair ever again in the movie. And I, it just doesn't, it jumps too much. The whole story takes place over eight years, and it's always winter, which... <laughs> yes. I, I sort of, I get the, I actually in, think the choice to set it always in winter is super interesting because it's a very cold movie, um, very sort of stark, but um, it just jumps around too much. It jumps around way too much to make real sense. I, you sort of get the intent of what he's going for with the sort of parallel performances of similar scenes coming, in some cases, one right after the other but it just doesn't really work this time. And he's made that kind of thing work before, but not, not this time. It doesn't really work. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, maybe let's, let's talk a little bit about some of the performances. We'll, we'll start with Ryan Reynolds. We both sort of alluded to this, that he often, I, I guess not often he, he, for a while, you know, he, when he started out, he was this sort of like sexy, romantic comedy heartthrob kind of guy and then he clearly wanted to move out of that so he started taking more serious roles and low budget films and did quite a bit of really interesting work while peppering in at that time you know sort of these hollywood movies that were sort of failing you have stuff like uh the green lantern movie or ripd that sort of was happening in this similar time frame and then he kind of fell off for a couple of years where we just didn't really see him in anything and then he pops up as deadpool and now he's you know, one of the biggest celebrities on the planet and has kind of ridden this wave of uh, Deadpool-esque humor to sort of reshape what the the current landscape is for what uh, a quote-unquote comedic film is, for better or for worse, depending on your opinion on that. Um, but yeah, it's always sort of shocking to go back and be like, oh, wow, yeah, Ryan Reynolds was a, was a damn good actor for, for a little period of time where he's picking some really interesting movies. I remember we did an earlier A24 film called The Voices, and I was shocked at just how good of a movie that is and how great of a performance that he had in it. Yeah, that's actually one that I haven't seen. Um, but I could say the same thing because the year after this one, he did a film I quite like, which is, in, I believe, in A24 called Mississippi Grind, which is excellent. He's like He's really good in it. And I find it interesting that we like the, cause I sort of had thought the same thing that he sort of like fell off the face of the earth for a while, but actually like Deadpool's only two years after this <laughs> and RIPD is only one year before and safe house is only like, 
he's it's his filmography's a pretty steady like two to four films a year every year and there's at least one sort of like big title in, in almost every year the only years that he really only has one or two since about 2010 would be 2010 and then 2018 mm-hmm. um so he's it's not that he's not like working it's that he's he made a bunch of interesting especially in the early tens he made a bunch of really interesting choices um yeah the, the late zeros and the early tens he made a bunch of interesting more interesting choices and since i think the thing is that since deadpool he's kind of been doing the same thing over and over and over and over again and i find that a little disappointing because every time i go back and watch something from before deadpool i'm like oh yeah this guy can like do more than one thing like it's 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 i just want to see him get back to doing more stuff like this, doing more interesting, just like straight up dramatic work rather than being Wade Wilson all the time, you know? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was, I thought to myself after watching this movie that there was an interesting parallel to another set of actors. So I I figure you would probably appreciate this. We're thinking of the careers of, of two actors, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and John C. Riley. The two of them sort of burst on the scene around the same time in, in the early 90s, doing lots of PTA work. And then they sort of, when once they had their name known, were doing a little bit of kind of interesting comedy work. People forget that Philip Seymour Hoffman is in Along Came Polly and is really funny in that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, we know John C. Riley's work. And then after that, they kind of like veered in completely different directions you know um philip seymour hoffman veered hard into the very serious dramatic work for the most part and john c Riley has basically exclusively done uh overly comedic farcical slapstick humor like the will ferrell brand of comedy and then i sort of was thinking about this with with ryan reynolds him and ryan gosling are very similar they both sort of came up as you know teen heartthrobs young early uh, romantic comedy leads. They both kind of dabbled doing um, serious dramatic work with some light comedic fare. And then Gosling has pretty much shifted directly into the hard dramatic route, whereas Reynolds has now shifted hard into the comedic route, very similar to Hoffman and uh, Riley. Do you sort of see a similar career parallel between those four actors there? Yeah, it's an interesting comparison. I I don't think it's, White is cut and dry with Riley, but yeah, especially with um, with Hoffman and Gosling, uh, who, according to bylaws, is Canada's Ryan Gosling, for the record. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, that is an interesting comparison. I I really hope they all get back to doing more varied work. To be totally honest, because I mean, obviously, rest in peace, Philip Seymour Hoffman. I don't think you can do any more work. But no, uh, John C. Riley is a really good dramatic actor and Ryan Gosling is an excellent comedic actor. So I just, I just Mm -hmm. hope they, it feels like we're in an era of, and I'm sure there's lots of conversations about comic book movies. We can blame for this, but like, it feels like we're in an era where we're, we don't really like actors to be anything than the thing that they are most famous for. And I kind of dislike that about now. Yeah. Well, at least we'll have uh, Ryan Gosling's uh, Barbie movie to look forward to, which that looks to be quite silly. I am legitimately, legitimately excited for Barbie. I think that that Ryan Gosling is one of our great Canadian actors uh, and just great actors in general. But also I think that Greta Gerwig is a really interesting director and I can't wait to see what she does next. Yeah, And what she's doing next is Barbie. So that's what I'm looking forward to. (laughs) Yes. Uh, if I can sort of pinpoint one Ryan Reynolds scene that really worked for me, it was probably the first interview scene that he has with the cops where he's, you know, he's giving his statement about what had happened when his daughter was abducted. And very slowly we realize uh, the Scott Speedman character has him as a prime suspect in mind and how the tables slowly start to turn. And Ryan Reynolds realizes this and sort of like loses his shit and freaks out on the cops. And then when his wife shows up to give an interview that sort of continues where Scott Speedman is like really needling him to try to force a, a, a confession out of him. And that had to be, it was very early in the movie. It had to be the highlight of, of the, the movie for me, as far as a, a Reynolds performance goes. 
I mean, that is a great scene. Um, I also thought Scott Speedman was really good in that scene because he's playing a character that you are immediately not going to like. And he seems to be actually really good at that while remaining charismatic. Um, yeah, the whole, the whole thing where his character is immediately convinced that the father must be involved. Uh, and he, he relates it back to some prior incident that I can't remember. I just watched this movie and I can't remember if there's any explanation (laughs) of what that prior incident even was. And so obviously I wish that there was at least one scene where they explain that a little more, but, um, yeah, I think that's a really great scene. The slow, the slow turn that Ryan Reynolds takes from being a distraught father to being like, shit, I'm under attack here. Uh, it was pretty compelling to watch. Yeah. And it, it was interesting because I really liked Speedman's turn in this because it made sense. And I, I at first thought we were getting an unreliable narrator story, which is an always interesting route to take. I was like, oh, maybe Ryan Reynolds was involved with this. Maybe the detective hunches are onto something. But then Agoyan kind of shows us too much of the flashback to sort of reveal like, oh, no, he had nothing to do with this. Uh, We know who the kidnappers are. We more or less sort of understand what their motives are. Um Ryan Reynolds' character had nothing to do with this. So it started as a very interesting idea that loses its steam because of the way Agoyan decided to to sort of uh, structure the story. Yeah, I mean, it just comes back to the non-linear thing, right? Like I said before, anytime the film is building any kind of tension, uh, it then it almost immediately switches to a different time frame and it just deflates itself. And it takes away from the performances as well, because that scene where Speedman is like needling Reynolds. And then when Muriel Enos enters and she's obviously distraught and clearly like, you know, hitting him and yelling at him that that he's lost their daughter. I thought that scene was really great from both of them too, from Reynolds and Enos. Um, But then it switches timeframes almost immediately. And all the like emotional buildup is lost. (laughs) It's just, it's, so frustrating. Yeah. Uh, I want to kind of question what, uh, if, if Ryan Reynolds is, is Vancouver's mayor in my, uh, my words, uh, would Bruce Greenwood be Canada's dad, uh, in this scenario? <laughs> um, but more importantly, what the hell was he doing in this movie? Like his character does Quite literally nothing. Every scene that he's in, you could have cut him out completely and it wouldn't have changed anything. Uh, the answer is that Bruce Greenwood is in most of Adam McGoyan's films. They are like a, like a, a working pair, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is in Exotica. He's in The Sweet Hereafter. I'm pretty sure he pops up in... Uh, I can't remember the name of it. I think he pops up in where the truth lies. Like he, he's in a lot of him, him and Adam McGoyan seem to go way back. Yeah. Um, and I think that Bruce Greenwood is also one who has been really good about, you know, he has broken big in America. He's obviously had some pretty prestigious film roles, but he also comes back to Canada pretty frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, his parents actually live in my hometown, which is interesting too. Oh, interesting. Yeah. When, uh, when the sweet hereafter came out, uh, I'm from a very small place where the local movie theater is literally a church that we like they drag theater seats out into move the pews aside and <laughs> put theater seats out on, uh, in the evenings. And, uh, he came to a screening of the sweet hereafter when that movie came out, when I worked there is, uh, Oh wow. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a small place. Yeah. But how did you feel about, you know, his role in this? Like, I, oh, he I did. Yeah. Being- he like, yeah, there's served zero, zero purpose except for yeah, there's one scene where everyone's at uh, like a fancy dinner and he basically asks questions of Rosario, Rosario Dawson so that she can exposit so that the bad guy who's also at the table can hear her exposit. And that's it. That's his sole purpose. In the yeah. Movie. Which is weird because, you know. Uh, in those scenes, I was like, oh, is he connected to the kidnapping? And also, that was my first thought as this was all sort of going on. 
And then I realized, well, wait, no, he's not. But the kidnapper was also sort of asking questions to get exposition from Rosario Dawson. Could they not have just made all of Bruce Greenwood's lines the kidnapper's lines? Because he clearly, because then they also use this plot point of it wasn't the kidnapper who did the kidnapping. It was a henchwoman who sort of does it. And because this is a second plot line that Rosario Dawson herself gets kidnapped as well, because she arrests a different pedophile that is a part of this pedophile ring. And wow, this movie is super complicated. Um, Yeah, it it doesn't, I don't think you need to try to explain it. It's not really explainable in a short way, (laughs) you know, like. Yeah, because they they want to they want to they only they it seems like they should be trying to kill Rosario Dawson, but they want to like kidnap her and then like make her relive her childhood trauma that made her become uh, a police officer, and it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any yeah. sense at all. Uh, no matter how you think about it, like it doesn't yeah. it doesn't make any sense. Now uh, I just want to point out. Kevin Durant, who plays the the main kidnapper pedophile guy named Mika, uh, could they have uh, gone leaned in any harder into the pedophile look with you know that creepy thin mustache he has and the like unnerving smile he has? It's like he pops up on screen and goes, "Oh, that's the bad guy." Yeah, I, I know that right from the get go. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think they could. Have. <laughs> um, what I find really interesting is that I'm really used to seeing. Kevin Durand as some kind of bad guy, right? Like he generally plays some kind of heavy, um, uh, you know, a henchman or the muscle or like a military team leader or something like that. Right. So I did find it interesting that they were clearly going for like, he was, he was dressed to be like quite slim and quite slight. And he had this real sort of, um, what the right word for it is, but this affect with the way that he spoke that was clearly designed to be a little meeker, even though he's like six foot a million or whatever and made of muscle, they're trying to make him look sort of smaller. And I find that a really interesting idea that also did not work at all. I felt that yeah. I, I kind of wanted to get around to Kevin Durant because I do think he's an interesting performer and this is not a good performance from him, unfortunately for me. I, I felt right. It's it was interesting that they were trying to go against type, and I felt like it did not work at all. Yeah, and they like dyed his hair silver as well. So like I I saw him pop up, and I was like, who is this guy that's clearly like ten years older than Bruce Greenwood in this movie? Yeah, yeah, and I feel like the direction for him in any given scene was like, okay, uh, Kevin, that was really good. Can you do it weirder? You know, <laughs> like, it, yeah, and that was like maybe the only no. Like, can you can you sneer your upper lip a little more? Can you can you make your eyes a little more dead? You know, it's 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 not it's not great. It's not great. Like, it's dialed to eleven in a way that does not work at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's funny. I, I kind of just want to keep talking about different plot points that didn't work for me, but I feel like I'm feeding into this narrative that I didn't like this movie when I actually really did. So it's just very interesting because I want. I, I was like, oh, but what about you know all that hotel stuff that the mother was going through? That baffled me the whole time. It wasn't until the very very end where they kind of put it together that I'm like, oh, we've been watching all this for for this reveal? Like, this is a lot of work for just this. Uh, Also, what hotel caretaker only does single floors and doesn't just do every room that needs cleaning? Like, that that was a little confusing for me. That's a a pretty common, I believe, uh, thing for chambermaids to do when they're working at the Hotel of Narrative Convenience. (laughs) <laughs> of narrative convenience yes absolutely i was gonna say i was like where are you going with this no, no, no. um because when i was in college uh during the summer our residence turned into a hotel and so i worked in the housekeeping staff and no it was like oh this room was checked out we clean this room now it's not you do the the floors in order you just go through and do them as they need to be cleaned <laughs> yep it doesn't make any sense uh they, like the, so the whole subplot of like the bad guys spying on the mother with hidden cameras in the hotel. Like they would have to put hidden cameras in every room in the hotel. And I just like, I don't want to say that that's not 
possible, but it's super impractical. Yeah. And I don't, I never quite understood. Like, obviously they have the daughter the whole time, like the whole eight year period this film takes, takes place over. But the implication here is that like they're child pornographers and they have a whole ring of people who subscribe to watch this child pornography. So a, not that I want to see that, but like, I would like to understand that it is happening. And why are they so fixated on this one girl's mother? It, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't make sense. It's not like, cause every scene where they're talking about it, they make it sound like this huge industry, but it's never more than one girl in a basement. And one time, playing piano, playing and poetry. Yeah, yeah. And then one time we see her like, on a Skype call trying to lure another young girl one time and it doesn't make sense. <laughs> it just doesn't yeah. make sense. And, and in that single scene, it is Scott Speedman's niece. And at this point, him and Rosario Dawson are dating and she comes in and finds out what that Scott Speedman is basically using his own niece as bait uh, for the bait uh, to get more information on the ring. And, you know, Rosario Dawson just basically decides to, be protective, which is fair in a, in a wise character decision, but does it in a, in a way that just completely sabotages the case in the lead. It was like, that, that was just some bad copping there, Rosario. Yeah. Like I say, it doesn't, doesn't make any goddamn sense. It doesn't. <laughs> what I'm curious about is like, I, so all of this aside, I, I will say that it is frustratingly close to being good. Like the stuff that, that works like Ryan Reynolds' performance and um, occasionally Rosario Dawson and Mariel Enos' performance. Scott Speedman is compelling in a number of scenes. Um, and a number of the scenes, like that one we spoke about earlier, and there's another one where uh, Reynolds does get to, like, Reynolds' character does get to, like, see his now, like, 18-year-old daughter. And I thought that scene was really well executed, too, right up until the end when it goes off the rails. Um so there's like a lot going for this movie and it's like almost good. Right. Like I find it again, frustrating would be the word, but I'm curious to like, what did you like? Like what put it over the edge for you to be like, you keep, you say that you liked it and I believe you, but I would like you to to explain to me why you liked it basically is what I'm asking here. Cause I just found it really frustrating. Yeah, I I think I think the key thing is the performance has really worked for me uh, across the board. I thought they were all very interesting and well done, and it was it was sort of nice to see some people play against type or people that are you know good in their lane. Scott Speedman's very good at being you know a, a cocky smarmy guy, and he's a cocky smarmy cop in this, but he does it very well. So mm-hmm. I liked all the performance aspect of that, and I think. The, you know, while the actual story and plot line is way too unnecessarily complicated, the actual story itself, I thought, worked for me. You know, th- this is a movie that, that feels like a prototype for something like Denis Villeneuve's Prisoners, where it's a very sort of similar story. I'm sure there's other movies out there as well where a child gets kidnapped and a parent Usually the father, you know, makes it their mission to hunt down and, and, and track the the kidnappers down. You know, you also have movies like Taken and stuff like that as well. Um, and I, I sort of, I really liked it. The, the problem was, as we keep talking about, all the stuff that I do like about this plot and the acting and all that sort of stuff is, is very overshadowed by a overly complicated uh, time-shifting narrative, even if I think the use of the time-shifting does make sense at times it just overcomplicates itself by not revealing the time jumps to the audience which makes it a little bit hard to follow on and not realize it was a time jump until later on which there are movies that do that quite successfully and you know i i made a joke about christopher nolan earlier and, and he has done that a few times where you don't realize a time jump has happened until much later and that is sort of the twist in it in and of itself and i appreciate that but here it just seemed like we were expected to know it was a time jump, even though there's nothing really to distinguish it. Because like you said, it all takes place during winter. As I said, Ryan Reynolds has a beard, bushy beard the whole time. So you can't tell, you know, oh, is this, you know, his depression beard or is this, you know, just his everyday beard sort of thing. Um, 
So yeah, once again, I'm I'm trying to explain how I like it, and I'm talking about why I don't like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I think it was just something, you know, maybe because I was watching it on a plane ride, and I was just sort of in the moment, and was able to kind of focus on it, and I was enjoying it in the moment. And it's one of those movies that the more you try to talk about it and break down, the more holes there are, and the more you sort of question it. Um, even if I want to sort of stand still on my uh, platform of it's not a bad movie. It's fine. I, I kind of liked it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's fair. It sounds like we're actually pretty much on the same page, but like, you know, a hair's breadth apart on whether we came away positive or not, basically. Yes. Yeah. Like all, all of our complaints are the same. Um, it just worked better for you than it did for me. Yeah, I, th- I think that's fair to say. I, I think because we both realize that there is probably uh, an above average movie in here with maybe a, a bit of a better editing job uh, that was a bit more concise and, and, you know, maybe shave, you know, 10, 15 minutes off of it of, you know, superfluous scenes that didn't need to be there, specifically Bruce Greenwood's. Um, <laughs> and you probably have a much more concise, you know, pretty decent movie i think i think we're both kind of in agreement of that it's just where it kind of goes off the rails it doesn't lose me completely where it seems to lose you more yeah and that's fair i still would uh i'll reassert now that i think if you if you put this in linear order it wouldn't save it it's still too convoluted i think um whether they it it either needed to be sort of edited a little more uh, or maybe a, a better way to do it would be just to like maybe just one more pass at the script, just to like simplify it down a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's yeah, we're we're on the same page here. Like it doesn't, it just like we're like a, we're like a coin flip away from having uh, the same opinion. It's <laughs> yes, I I agree, and you know I'm I'm joking about the Bruce Greenwood stuff. I think a, another way to sort of simplify the story would. Well, as nice it is that they're focusing on both parents, this is clearly more of the father's story than the mother's story, the way it's set up. If all that hotel stuff with the mother was cut out completely, uh, I, I think it would have made it a lot more clear about what was happening and, and, and how things were going. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Uh, I think, yeah, shifting the focus from both of them to one of them, either one of them, uh, yes. would have made it a better film. Um, I think that Ryan Reynolds was a little more compelling than Meryl Enos was. I thought, I thought her performance is a, li- a little more uneven than his. So, uh, and, and honestly, like I know in these a 24 episodes, we come up with a double billing at the end. And I think if they had shifted more towards Ryan Reynolds, my double billing would be much easier to come with, come up with, but, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, shifting the focus from both of them to one of them, uh, at least in a, in a more primary way, would have made it a better film, yes. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's fair to say. Uh, and, you know, I think that's a, a pretty good segue point there where uh, we'll, we'll take a short break, and when we come back, we will uh, get to our games portion of this episode. All right, so as usual, we're, we're going to come up with a, a double bill pairing and a, and a would you rather. So uh, we'll start off with the double bill. What non-A24 film would you pair with The Captive, Matthew? Uh, I would pair. I would actually just pair it with Adam McGoyan's uh, Oscar-nominated The Sweet Hereafter uh, for a number of reasons. Um, they both involve a childhood tragedy. They're both set in the winter. They both feature some A-plus acting from uh, a um, pretty amazing cast that includes Ian Holm, Sarah Pauly, Maury Chaikin, Bruce Greenwood, um, and a number of like local Canadian actors like Gabrielle Rose and Adam McGowan's ex-wife, uh, Arsene Kanjian, I believe is how you pronounce her name. Sorry if it's not. Um, um, and it features a nonlinear narrative that's told entirely in the wintertime. And it's really good. It's a much better film. Uh, it's probably, I can say, in the conversation for at least top 20, but probably top 10 Canadian films of all time. Um, it's, it's, I feel like in some ways, 
it feels like the the captive is trying to recapture this magic. You know, mm. they tread some fairly similar ground. Um, but this one is it's just so much better. It's 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 devastating and heartbreaking and really, really, really well done. Uh, and yeah. if you haven't seen it, it might be, it's either the best or the worst place to start with your Adam McGoyan uh, watching because it's easily, I think his best film. <laughs> yeah. I, I think you can't talk about modern Canadian cinema without including the sweet hereafter as uh, a seminal film in that regard. And, and I really, really want to watch it. It's been on my watch list for years. I think I have it saved on uh, my watch list for the criterion channel. And every time I, I, I want to watch it, I like pull it up and then you read the log line about what it's about. And I'm just like, am I really in the mood for this movie right now? I don't think I am. <laughs> um, because it it's a traumatic movie. It's a traumatic and depressing movie. I think part of what, and I would have to go through and read more uh, of the like nuts and bolts of Adam McGoyne's films, but I think one key difference is that um, it is based on a novel, whereas uh, The Captive is an original screenplay. And I tend to think that Adam McGoyne is a little bit better at adapting things than coming up with the whole mm. cloth. That's fair. That's e- fair. Even though he does mo- mostly original work, I think that the ones yeah. that are that are adaptations tend to be a little better. Well, uh, I think knowing you, I think you're going to appreciate my pick. I, I you know, I, I debate between two, and I was going to do Prisoners. I was like, you know what? I'm not going to do Prisoners, even though there's a nice parallel of it being another Canadian director, filmmaker. That, that was my uh, second choice, actually. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, the one I'm going to go with is You Were Never Really Here, directed by Lynn Ramsey. Um, you know, you watch a movie like The Captive, and most of the time you're just like, man, I really hope these scumbags get what's coming to them. Uh, and, you know, if you really hate uh, kidnappers and pedophiles, you might enjoy watching You Were Never Really Here and watch Joaquin Phoenix bashing uh, their heads in with hammers uh, constantly to save young children from um, the horrors of uh, trafficking. Yeah, so you know, if you're into that, you know, I still haven't actually seen that movie. It's a, it's a big, really? it's a big hole in my like recent movie watching canon. Um, we keep seeing it pop up on Prime. It's on Prime. It's on Prime. Yeah, and we keep going like, yeah, that looks like a great film. I don't want to be depressed right now. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, I should probably just make a point. As with the sweeter after for you, I just need to make a point of sitting down and watching it. Yeah, yeah, it's. It is incredibly brutal and visceral. So if you um, have any sort of problem with uh, with violence, uh, I would not recommend people to watch this movie. But if you are okay with uh, violence, like you, you're the type of person that you know you watch uh, something like. Uh, Django and Chain, and be like, "Yeah, I like that slavers are, are getting their doom and getting killed." Now imagine the violence was realistic. Um, it gets, it sort of tests your uh, your limits of um, uh, extrajudicial justice and your thoughts on it very quickly. Um, but uh, also, it features a phenomenal score by Johnny Greenwood of, of Radiohead, who has done some of the best score work in recent years, especially his work with yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson. I have and, uh, I have uh, listened to the score. Um, it is so it's good. So good. Yeah. Probably his best, in my opinion. Yeah, I remember thinking there was that year that he was recently he was nominated for Academy Award, and I'm like, that is deserved. This is for the wrong film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems like he he does it in waves, where it's like he doesn't do any movies for a few years, then all of a sudden he's got like two or three in the same year, and he's like, you need to be nominated for every movie you do in the Academy Awards. I want it to be Johnny Greenwood, Johnny Greenwood, Johnny Greenwood, a Hans Zimmer, and like a Michael Giacchino movie. And like, those are the five nominees. Pretty much. Pretty much. I think it was, um, 
Yeah, it was the last year, I think, actually. He was uh, he had Spencer and The Power of the Dog, and he was nominated for, I believe, The Power of the Dog, and I was like, that's a great nomination. He should be winning this for Spencer. Yes, yeah, 100%. All right, so those are our double bill pairings. Do you have a would-you-rather question for me? Yeah, but it's going to be a real-world one, uh, not okay. not like a hypothetical one. So my question is, would you rather Ryan Reynolds keep doing what he's doing now or get back to making choices like he was in the late zeros and the early tens. <laughs> Before I answer, I'm going to read you my question. Mm-hmm. Ryan Reynolds, uh, should, would you rather Ryan Reynolds have stuck with indie dramas and never <laughs> become a box office star or is never able to do a serious movie again? This means that if he's stuck with indie dramas, Deadpool, Detective Pikachu, and others don't exist, but he toils away in near anonymity as a Canadian dramatic actor. But if he goes mainstream, we don't get the captive, buried, or Mississippi grind. Yep. Yep. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah. It, I enjoy that how sometimes we're on very much the same wavelength. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and honestly, I your question's harder than mine because I'm saying that like from now forward, what should you do? And you're saying mm. what choice should you have made back then? And yes. um, I don't know how to answer your question, <laughs> to be totally honest, because <laughs> A lot of his work that I really like, and I'm a big fan of Deadpool. I'm also a big fan of Mississippi Grind. I'm also a big fan of a number of other films he's done. Um, uh, but honestly, probably if I had to choose, <laughs> fuck, if I had to choose, uh, I would probably say for your question that, I mean, stick with the, stick with the blockbusters, man. He's doing too much good work in the world now to for me to want to give that up you know Mm. between him and his wife uh blake lively they are you know they give to charity and they have lots of diversified business interests and they seem like really good people and i don't think he'd be in that same position uh as a happy charitable human being without those blockbusters so i'm going to say blockbusters for your question Fair enough. Uh, for your question, I would uh, say dramas. And for my question, I would say um, small indie movies because this is where we, we sort of differ. I'm really tired of the Ryan Reynolds shtick. It's it's just too grating at this point. Oh, I, I can't do it anymore. I, I didn't say I wasn't tired of it. I just said that <laughs> I recognize that he is a he's, – he's a very – happy charitable human being right now and i would hate to deny him that yeah he he is and it's it's frustrating because like i know he's a good dude and i know he does do a lot and i appreciate all he does and the cause that he raises awareness for it's just the in sort of the dumbing down of of comedies that has been happening it just I, I'm not I'm not on board for all of that. So I'm I'm sorry, Ryan, you're gonna be poor, but you're gonna be making some great indie films that every once in a while, you know, uh might get you noticed internationally, <laughs> but not in the US. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That's fair. That's totally fair. I will concede that if he if 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 he went with the uh the indie films, I think his career would be more interesting. He would be less famous, yeah. but his career would be more interesting. A hundred percent. You know, you look at something like his co-star Ben Mendelsohn, who, you know, despite being in Star Wars, if you kind of take that sort of stuff out, has done some absolutely phenomenal work playing some really interesting characters. And I could totally see him being on a similar career path as him. Yeah. And maybe famous at home. Because like one thing about Ben Mendelsohn we don't really think about is that apparently in Australia, he's like in the same conversation as Hugh Jackman and Russell Crowe as like huge stars. Um, but, and he's, he's a respected character actor here in North America, but at home he's an enormous star. Well, you know what? I think, I think that's actually a pretty good way of looking at because we do have our own ecosystem of talent. You know, you, you look at something like music wise, a band like the tragically hip, which can sell out every single hockey arena across this country. And when they go down to the United States, they were playing in dive bars, basically. And it's like, well, you know what? We, we support our own and we recognize good talent when we see it. So we would hopefully make Ryan Reynolds a star here, just not a very rich star elsewhere. <laughs> Yeah, I found that's interesting. There's a there's a, a person on 
TikTok that I like, uh, who's like a Canadian media uh, professor. And he recently asked, um, you know, so the Tragically Hip are a good, a good intro to this. He said basically that like the Tragically Hip are like Canada's band, right? They mm-hmm. are super popular here, but not super popular really anywhere else. But everyone here loves them. So is there an equivalent actor that is like a beloved Canadian icon who's not really famous elsewhere? And I don't know what the answer to that question is. I don't know who the answer to that question is. Uh, what do you What do you think? Because um, it's not Reynolds or Gosling, right? Because they're just too famous elsewhere. Yeah. And I feel like it's as much as I want to say that it's someone like Gordon Pinsent, um, it's just not. That's where my mind went to. But he's just not famous enough here, right? Yeah. I, I think of a certain generation, he's probably a bit more well-known. And then like the sort of, you know, contemporary to him would be someone like Christopher Plummer. But Plummer had enough American hits that he was well known there, but he's still sort of, you know, if, if you, you talk to like real Canadian, you know, film and, and theater nerds, Plummer is like up there of, you know, godlike status for the work he was doing in theater. Well, rightly so, um, but he's also a massive international star. So he doesn't really qualify is, the yeah. same way. Um, so yeah, it's a really interesting question to think about because I don't know who the answer would be. Yeah. Um, I don't Dan Levy, even though Shit's Creek is still pretty popular in the States. <laughs> I mean, you could probably make an argument for some of the Second City guys. Uh, so maybe not, I, I maybe, not so, yeah. maybe not Dan Levy, but maybe like, uh, you know, Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara, that sort of uh, group. Um, yeah. Because they are, I mean, maybe not Catherine O'Hara. She's probably too famous in the States. But Eugene Levy is more of a character performer down there. Mm-hmm. Um. But is he super famous up here? I don't really know. <laughs> like, I think most people know him, but they would probably know him because of stuff like the American Pie movies. Yeah, exactly. And could he, as with the Tragically Hip, a being able to sell out like Canadian arenas, could, would he be the guy to lead a Canadian film to success? But not in America. I don't like, it's a really interesting question. And I, I don't, again, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know who the answer is, but it's really interesting to think about. But yeah, I, I, I agree. That's a, that's a very tricky question and I appreciate you bringing it up. And I feel like I've had a similar thought in my head when thinking of something like the tragically hit, but I don't think I've ever had a discussion about it with anyone. So I appreciate that we actually had that conversation. Yeah, me too. I think it's an interesting one just to think about, like I say, just generally speaking, I think it's an interesting question to pose, especially when, you're, you know, seated with another film nerd like we are now. Yes, yes, I, I appreciate that. Uh, all right, I think the last thing I want to very, very, very quickly touch on is the recent sight and sound poll. I am not going to reveal any thoughts of my own about it because next week in a very special episode, we are doing a massive uh, sight and sound related episode. I guess I'll sort of explain it here, but I sent out a large amount of emails and messages to uh, the film criticism community, industry professionals, and other respected people involved in film, and ask them to submit their own 10 greatest films of all time. You, Matthew Simpson, were one of the people, respected people, that I had asked to submit their ballots. Uh, and next week, we are going to reveal our ContraZoom, greatest, ContraZoom pod greatest films of all time and discuss the actual sight and sound poll. And there's also going to be a pretty big announcement that I cannot reveal yet that has to do with the uh, the show itself and where we are going and headed that uh, Matthew does not know about, so I can't even tell him yet. Um, but I'm before, intrigued. <laughs> you'll have to tune in next week to find out. Um, that all said, do you have any quick thoughts on the Sight and Sound poll itself? Uh, so the newly released Sight and Sound critics poll is, I think, super interesting. I think their number one choice uh, of Jean Dillman is super interesting. It's a film I haven't actually seen. Um, I think it's super interesting that it shot to the top. It was ranked in the twenties last time they did this poll. Um, I, you know, I have mixed feelings about top 10 lists, like ranked lists like this in general, because they're so reflective of like, 
there's no such thing as like objectively the best movie in the world. Right. Um, I think the list is very reflective of the people that they survey. Um, and when you're surveying 1600 movie critics, they're going to choose things that are different than you or I might choose basically. Um, but I think it's a good list. I think I'm excited to like dive into it, to be totally honest. I, I, I've never, I'm, I'm way behind in my sight and sound watching. Let's put it that way. There's a bunch of films I need to catch <laughs> up on. And now that there's a new list, I feel like I have 10 years to do that. So it, that's where I'm at with it. So I'm going to uh, talk a little bit because I, I want you to pull it up in case you don't have it up already. Uh, do you know how many of the 100 movies that they've released? Because they've not released the full long list yet. I'm at 47. But yeah, you're, you're right. You're talking about you, it's really hard to quantify what the greatest film of all time is and how it would be hard to argue. Like, like no one would ever put like something like Airplane on their list because that would be absolutely ridiculous. Right, Matthew? Oh yeah, for sure. I definitely didn't put that on my list for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I am just teasing you there. No, I mean I get it. That's it's one of those things, right, where I think the it's interesting. These lists always turn out interesting at least because it's hard to tell whether someone is choosing their favorites or movies they think are like important to the canon. You know, because mm-hmm. those aren't always the same things. Um, yeah. I was having a discussion with another uh, with Simon, actually, where he was saying that, like, um, you know, Mad Max Fury Road not being on this list kind of in, almost invalidates the list for him. And I get it. It's a great film. One of my personal favorites. I didn't and wouldn't put it on the list. Because if we're talking about the greatest films of all time, if nothing else, as a point of comparison, um, The Road Warrior is a more influential film. Mm, interesting. Like, you know, same same director, same franchise, more important to the canon, even though I think Fury Road is a better film. Does that make sense? Interesting. Like, and yeah, I think, no, I, I totally get what you're saying. And I think that that is where a lot of these votes come from personally because uh, a lot of the movies on lists like this end up being like the big influential or important films. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why I think, you know, get out being on the list is an incredible choice um, because it is an important film to like to American and to black American cinema. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, that's, that's where I think these lists the list like sight and sound come from. And as a result, they often end up being a little more esoteric than like the average person is going to really gel with. Um, but I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's just reflective of the group of people that they asked for ballots. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so in that time, were you able to pull up, um, I know on letterbox there's a, if you go to your stats page, well, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the BFI page right now, actually. Okay, how many have you seen? Uh, I was talking, so 31, 32. Have I seen Chunking Express? I must have seen Chunking Express. I'm going to count it. 33, 34, 35, 35. Interesting. I I sort of expected you to be a little bit higher um, considering what a film scholar I consider you to be. Yeah, I am pretty good with North American film. And this fil- this list features a lot of European films that I haven't seen. Um, it's, it's funny where you, you look on, you know, uh, the circles that we're in where you're in film Twitter world or, or places like that. And you see people be like, Oh man, I have so many to see. I'm only at like 75%. I'm like, wow, I, I guess I got a lot of, to, to, to watch, to catch up on. And here I am at 47, you're at 33. And I feel like we were to talk to basically any regular movie going person. They probably have seen a fraction of them. Yeah. So it's always funny sort of readjusting um, where you, you perceive yourself of like, Oh, there's always something else that, that could be watched. Yeah, that's totally true. And for me, like there's, yeah, the two things. One, I'm, I've been really bad in my life about, 
seeking out films from other regions, something I've been trying to correct a little bit in these last few years. And then there's also, weirdly, I've seen a lot of movies from like the 20s, the 30s, and the 40s. And a lot of movies from the 70s, the 80s, 90s, and up to now. But like the 50s and 60s are kind of like a weird dead zone for my film canon. Um, <laughs> so that's another area I need to work on. Other than other than okay. the classics, I mean. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate your uh, your brief thoughts on the Sight and Sound poll, and uh, I hope you'll enjoy our episode next week where we sort of delve into it more deeply. I, I know it's one that a lot of people will hopefully uh, find enjoyable, and especially once I reveal uh, some big names that uh, submitted their lists as well, which I, I won't reveal here at this time. Yeah, I'm actually super but, excited. Uh, Matthew- I'm actually super excited to listen to this episode of yours. Awesome. I really appreciate that. Uh, you've always been so supportive of Rachel and I, so I, I, I do really, that means a lot. Well, no, no problem. It's easy because it's true. <laughs> well, Matthew, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Where can people find you and your work? And is there anything you would like to promote? Yeah. Uh, the easiest place to find me is on Twitter. As long as Twitter continues to exist, my handle is at Matthew AF. Uh, everything else you can find at our website, which is awesomefriday.ca or on your favorite podcasting platform, uh, search for the awesome Friday podcast and we should come up. Um, we, I don't have anything super special to promote. Uh, we just love for you to come and give us a listen and tell us what you thought. Uh, last week, what did we cover last week? I am drawing a complete blank because that's how my life goes right now. Um, but we're covering two Netflix movies this week, which I'm going to record uh, right after we're done recording this. Uh, one of which might be the best film, one of the best films of the year. So I'm pretty excited to talk about it. Last week, you uh, you went back to Andor, did Spirited, uh, speaking of Ryan Reynolds, and the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special. That's right. We kicked off our holiday season. Three things. Yeah. It's, uh, and like... We were only going to do two, and then Andor was just so good that we had to talk about it again. It's uh, it's a shockingly good show. Uh, I, I'm very excited to listen to that episode because I just finished uh, this series, I think, one or two nights ago. Yeah, and then uh, Spirited is also, I thought, Simon didn't like it, but I thought it was perfectly cromulent. And I, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's fun, fun holiday film. But yeah, we're the one of the two films we're talking about uh, on our next episode, again, I think is probably one of the better films of the entire year, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. You're going to have to tune in and find out. Ooh, I love uh, I love a good um, hanging thread there for us to to follow up on. So uh, I appreciate that. Uh, once again, thank you very much, Matthew. Oh. You can follow this show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. And if you have seen The Captive, let us know your thoughts. Send an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all episodes there as well. And if you like listening to the show a lot, consider tipping us on coffee. Thanks for checking us out. Mm-hmm.